I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Arts-Based Community Development Director with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm speaking with Ann Madden, artist and co-owner of Smith & Lynn's Gallery in Bay St. Louis. Ann, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're so excited to have you and I just want to uh, start at the beginning. So why don't you paint a picture for me uh, growing <laughs> up? <laughs> well, I grew up in New Orleans. And uh, my grandmother was from Pass Christian and had a house in Pass Christian. So I spent pretty much every single summer and weekends between Easter and Labor Day in the pass. I mean, really, my parents would load up the station wagon with the cars and all the stuff, pick us up from school, and we would drive to the pass and not come back until the day before school started. Wow, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I would think so many people, I'm not from Mississippi, but I would think so many people from Mississippi might go to New Orleans, might do the opposite, might go to New Orleans, you know, for the weekend or long weekend. Well, come back. So, I mean, I grew up in New Orleans, yeah. so it was our change of scenery, you know, and my dad would, my dad would stay in town and work Monday through Friday and then come over on the weekends. Okay. And it was pretty great. I mean, I, um, we would stay in the back house at my grandmother's and just, we were wild, it felt like, you know, I mean, I didn't really realize we were until now seeing the way I raised my children. It's different, you know, uh-huh. but, um, but I never, I, I liked it. I didn't appreciate it the way I appreciate it now. Sure. Like I'm looking at it through a very different lens and I really never thought that I would be back living in the South, let alone a small town in Mississippi. And I, I can't believe how much I love it. I mean, I say the same things all the time, you know, like Bay St. Louis is the best place. I'm sorry. I know you, you probably love your town, but my <laughs> town's better. <laughs> wow. So what, what is it about Bay St. Louis? We'll get back to growing up, but what is it about Bay St. Louis that really draws you to it and makes you love it in this way? Well, the people, the vibe, I think the wide openness of living on the water which obviously the whole coast has that but there is something about that where I feel sort of stuffed into a place if I don't have that now you know um but I feel like yeah like you know I mean I know it's cliche but I feel like I found my tribe in Bay St. Louis I've I've loved we you know before Bay St. Louis my husband and I lived in DC I love DC I love my friends from there but it's so big and there's so much happening that I think that I wouldn't have the gumption to take the risks maybe or to start anything the way that I do in Bay St. Louis. I mean, what I'm hearing you say is freedom. Like the free, the yeah. water allows you some freedom, the community allows you sure. some freedom. Sure, and, and, I, and I feel really encouraged and supported. So mm-hmm. I am so grateful for that, for sure. So you said um, your parents or your dad was working in New Orleans. What'd your, mm-hmm. what'd your parents do? My dad um, is an insurance agent and, you know, set up pensions for people. And my mom was a teacher. And um, my grandmother was one of three and they were all very artistic. And, but my dad was the only child from that entire generation. So, I mean, I remember like on the weekends in the summers that we would come to Pass Christian, we would do kind of some arty things with my grandmother. And it's so funny because, you know, I rem- I have like sort of dormant memories that kind of come to life, come to the surface when I stumble upon them. Like the um, the Old Depot in Gulfport, mm-hmm. 
there's a mosaic there and I had completely forgotten about it, but a client of mine, Tanya Tancredi, opened a salon over there and then I parked there to go deliver some graphic stuff to her or something, I don't know, and, and I saw the, um, the mosaic and found like the seahorse that I did with my grandmother when I was eight. Wow. You know, like stuff like yeah. that. Just, yeah, I don't know, that that's super special, but I guess I didn't really care at the time, but when it all came back and I was with my kids, it was like, oh my gosh, this is full circle stuff, you know? Yeah, so what other kind of arts, you know, did you do as a child, like? Well, we would go, um, my grandmother would take us to the museum. My mom was very in love with Ocean Springs and Shearwater, and so we would spend a lot of time here. I mean, I really remember sitting in that back room at Shearwater watching the silkworms do their thing while my mom dug through the pottery and the prints and then getting to go into the little house with the painted you know everything and um seeing the potters at work I just and sometimes I'm like man was that even real or was that a dream you know like Uh I'm in my mid-40s now I have no, it's been a long, long time, you know, but I do, I, I really fond memories of Shearwater growing up and that, but I remember always hearing about McCarty, uh-huh. but we never went because it was, you know, five hours away. Right. So I took my girls there like three or four summers ago and we went, we had, you know, we were in awe over the showroom. We got our little treasures and we were getting ready to walk out when the lady said, don't forget the gardens. Like we almost missed the whole, Wow. Yeah. all of that. We spent another hour and a half there. <laughs> like these Smithsonian recognized gardens, we really almost just completely missed them. Wow. That's, so that was really cool. And that's a nice connection to yeah. your water and, and the history there. That's, that's interesting. Now you, I know, spent some time traveling. Paris? Is I studied that? abroad okay. when I was in school. So, yeah. so walk me through that journey. So you're here, so you know, we're, where you're living in New Orleans, you're coming up to past Christianity, you're experiencing this. So then you're kind of coming into your own as an artist as well. Well, I don't know. Like I, so I, I knew that I loved art. I knew I wanted to work in art. <laughs> I decided to go to the University of Arizona for art history. Uh-huh. And I remember my dad saying like, well, that and a dollar will get you downtown on the streetcar <laughs> then what? You know, and I was like, well, you know, I don't know. Like, I really just thought I, I can go, like, work in a museum or whatever. And, um, but the art history thing, I think, was the fear of actually, like, being on the hook to be an artist. Mm-hmm. And because I knew that I wanted to create things, but I hadn't found the thing that I could create yet. Mm -hmm. So I graduated with a bachelor's in art history from University of Arizona. Then, I I mean, I spent most of my senior year in a total panic, like, what am I going to do with this? And my, one of my closest friends growing up was at Ole Miss, was graduating, called me and said, I'm moving to DC after I graduate. What are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. And she goes, well, I need a roommate. I'm like, okay, great. Right. Take, you took an opportunity, right? That was I put mean, in front of you. <laughs> I was like zero planning. Uh-huh. I have. I'm not a good planner. I okay. still am not. But um, so yeah. So I moved to DC and um, worked in an art gallery in Georgetown, and that was insane. And I worked at the National Gallery of Art, oh. but doing 
crowd control, basically, mm. for the Picasso show. And I was a hostess and a waitress and a bartender. And I worked every single day. And I was not a whole lot of fun to be around. But, um, but I loved the... Um, I just I the gallery job I didn't love, but I loved being exposed to all this artwork I never would have been otherwise. And the National Gallery job was rough, but when you're in the East Building standing under that gigantic Calder mobile, like I'll do any job there. Right. I mean it was incredible. I just I just really felt very lucky to be surrounded by that. And um, that was one of the best things about living in D.C. is the Smithsonian's. I mean, everything is free. Yeah, I have a friend who grew up in D.C. And she said she, when she moved to other places, she was so enraged that yeah. you had to pay for yeah. museums because she grew up being yeah. able to go to any museum she wanted for free. It's a treasure. Yeah, it really is. I, I, I can only imagine. I mean, I love the idea of being around something so much that you love that you'll do anything you know my husband always says he'll he'll pick up trash if he has to if he can be on the river all day you know it's that Mm -hmm. kind of thing it's Mm -hmm. like finding those things Mm -hmm. so so you're working in dc so what was next what's next so then um then i just kind of knew that i that i wanted to do something else i didn't want to stay in this five dollar an hour gallery job and i didn't want to work in you know, a restaurant forever because it just, it's like this black hole. I mean, I love the people I worked with. It was super fun. You don't take home a lot of stress at night, but I wanted to do something else. So I decided that I want, that I was going to go to grad school. Mm-hmm. And um, I was thinking, you know, art therapy. Like I still, I, I, this, the whole time I was in DC too, I was taking, um, continuing education classes at the Corcoran, which I also felt super lucky to be able to do. So I did photography there and pottery, like wheel throwing pottery. And I hate throwing pots. Like I don't even like hand building. I just, it's not for me. I tried really hard. At the time I smoked Uh and I would get so frustrated because I couldn't center anything on the wheel that my instructor would be like, you need to go smoke a cigarette. I mean, I think like over a whole semester, I made two things. It's <laughs> pathetic, but the photography I loved, you know. Uh-huh. So, um, so I and I had taken a couple of photography classes at University of Arizona, also. So I always sort of had that in the background, and um, and then I decided that I needed to go to grad school, and I really had always wanted to move to New York. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I have this this idea for a series in my head that has only been all talk for like a year. But I was like, you know, I want to do a photo series of people who are of of what your childhood self thought your adult self would be like. So my I have a very vivid memory still of like a still of me living in Manhattan, wearing all black, very severe haircut, (laughs) gallery owner, no husband. No children, but a Great Dane. Okay. I, I don't even like dogs. I mean, I don't hate them, but that's not. Huh. So it's super weird. So I have a husband. I have two amazing kids. I do have a gallery. I did live in Manhattan, but only for a minute. No dogs. No dog, but we have <laughs> two cats and a rabbit. Um, 
So anyway, I just think that's so funny, like, yeah. to see. And, and the image that I have of myself is, like, I'm gigantic. You know, like, mm. I'm, like, like I must be looking at it from the curb. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think that would be a really fun series to do. I don't know how I got oh, on this topic. No, absolutely. We, we can go to any artistic <laughs> topic you'd like. I just, and so then I started talking to other people about it. And um, a, lot of, a lot of people said, like, I don't remember thinking about what I was going to be when I was growing up. I'm like, what? Oh, interesting. So maybe only certain people can, are, are really in that mind. I mean, I'm completely with you. I, I what a, was your, what did you well, think? Well, I had such a distinct, I will say, and I always joke about this because I'm five foot one. I knew that no matter what I was going to be as an adult, it would be tall. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I didn't stop to look around at all my relatives and and recognize that Uh I was actually, you know, that wasn't going to happen. Uh But, you know, but I had such a distinct, mine were more vague. Mine were more like tall, famous, not sure what for, Uh hoping it's not famous for something bad, Uh but just a feeling that that was going to happen. And an, and an artist, Uh but I didn't know what kind, because at the time I was theater and art and everything. I mean, I thought, I'll be honest with you, probably if I had to really say maybe stand up comedian, oh, I mean, awesome. something that seemed so unreachable. Mm-hmm. Like I grew up in East Tennessee. That's mm-hmm. not, you know, <laughs> the land of stand up comedy or anything yeah. like that. And I find now just going off of what you're saying with this series, it's like, there are parts of that. I do a lot of public speaking, you know, I do yeah. a lot of facilitating. I do a lot of things that kind of touch on this theater performance yeah. kind of thing. But it's so different. But those are the two that stand out to me, tall and comedy. <laughs> so there's your thing. There's, right. your, there's your shoot. You're on stage with, like, the hot lights at right. a mic. Right. With a glass of water on a stool, right? Right. You with know, the crowd hilariously laughing. You know, yeah, that's exactly right. I did a TEDx talk a few years ago, oh, and I remember... Awesome. They laughed at a part where I didn't expect laughter, but it was that moment Uh of I'm on the stage with the lights and a crowd of hundreds just laughed at something. And was it good? Was it a good feeling? It was a great feeling, but my instinct was to like, okay, next joke, you know, and I had to kind of say, no, no, let's stick to the script. This isn't, I'm not living this, this dream. I'm actually in the moment. But that's interesting. Um, but those unexpected moments are even like sweeter, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Today I'm talking with Ann Madden, photographer and co-owner of Smith & Lentz Gallery in Bay St. Louis. So Ann, before the break, we were talking about your travels, your time in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I know you spent some time in Paris. So what kind of led to that? So I um, had the opportunity to study abroad in Paris and... Um, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I got to see all a, a lot of what I had only ever seen in textbooks in real life. I spent a lot of time at the Musée d'Orsay and a little bit of time at the Louvre. And just wandering Paris was... I mean, I just really was aware of how incredible that opportunity was. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it... You know, I mean, I think that when you first leave the country... That was my first time, I think, ever leaving the country... It does change you a little bit, you know, just to be immersed in a completely different culture. I had been, <laughs> because I grew up in New Orleans, uh, we took French starting at age six. So I had taken French for, you know, whatever, 
14 years, Mm -hmm. really felt ready to go. I got in the cab and gave the cab driver my address at, I think I was in Charles de Gaulle airport or whatever. And I gave him the address and he was like, I have no idea what you just said. Like, just hand me the piece of paper. It was really humbling. I'm sure. Right when you're straight off the bus, as it yeah, were. Yeah, like, ready to go. Here I come, France. And then the guy's like, what did you just say? <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, it was great. I lived in this uh, <laughs> this dorm room in this place called Cité Universitaire and with a roommate named Lupe from California, who was wonderful. The outside... The building was gorgeous, right? And then you walk in, and it was like a 10-minute hall. It was horrible. Wow. But it was cheap as hell. Like, mm-hmm. the program was really inexpensive. But we did take English, or I'm sorry, like French as a second language classes at the Sorbonne, which was also mm-hmm. very cool. And um, and I took some art history classes over there, too. And we had a lot of freedom, and it was really great. And then, um, and then I came home at Christmas thinking... You know, that was cool. I'm going to go back to Tucson. And then the opportunity came up for me to go to Aix-en-Provence for the next semester, which I did, which was as much as I loved Paris, Aix was just magical. I mean, and, it was And tell me more better. about that. What is it? So Aix-en-Provence is in the south of France. And um, I took, I lived with a an older couple and... Um, they were just on the outskirts of town and they also rented to these two French um, nursing students. So it was just, I was completely surrounded by Frenchies. I mean, in Paris, I, I had a boyfriend who was French, but he wanted to learn English. So mm-hmm. I really spoke a lot of English with him when I should have just been speaking French and getting my French really great. But instead, I failed on that. So, but in X. You know, I would spend time outside, like on the smoking porch with my sort of roommate speaking French. And my French got really, really good. And it was (laughs) awesome. But these two girls, these two nursing students, they shared a room. I had my own room, but we all shared a kitchen. And I had my own bathroom. And I think that pissed them off. And they only would talk to me if one of the other ones was out of town. <laughs> so I was like, whatever. I love, I love the whole <laughs> French experience that you're learning French while you're smoking cigarettes. Yeah, I, I really, it felt yeah. very, yeah. very, you know, apropos. Yeah. Um, but, but I was, it was, I mean, it really was sort of, you feel like you're back in time almost, you know? And um, I was lucky enough to, so my... My major was art history. My minor was French. I had covered the French part. So I was taking painting classes in the countryside, like painting the same landscape that Cezanne was painting. Um, We would have models come to the studio who lived in Cezanne's castle. Like that is a place, I mean, or I don't know if it's still this way, but at the time I was told that it is, you have to be a starving artist and you get to live there for like free or almost free. Um, So that, it just all was like, you know, I like I keep saying, I was just enveloped by this world that had only ever been in textbooks to me. Um, And that was kind of where I found my voice painting, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, like I like I found my, I don't know, groove. I don't know what you would say, but like I wasn't super literal. I let myself sort of loosen up a bit. 
And um, I'm grateful for that time. I don't paint anymore and I don't care to, but I mean a little bit. Like I'm more, I'm more comfortable with the camera, but now I'm getting out of straight up photography and doing more photography mixed with mixed media, which is getting me excited lately. Um, so I'm just going to ride that wave for a little while and see what happens. So tell me a that. little bit about your photography. So start, so I know that's, I don't know if that's how you identify yourself or if that's what you're most known for, but I'm curious what kind of photography do you do or did you do? You know, kind of what do you look for? Well, I, I like weird and weirdos, you know, I like, I like, um, beauty that's, I say, I mean, beauty that's not super sweet. I like um, broken things, which are really easy to find here. I really like authenticity, even though photography, you know, obviously you're sort of manipulating the situation. But, um, you know, I don't know. I, I, every It's like, I'm just, I'm still very much evolving. I don't, there's something magical about shooting children or photographing children, uh, which is what I do. Like, that's how I make money. You mm -hmm. know, people hire me to photograph their families or just do their portraits or whatever. And I love the, um, it's like this absence of responsibility for um, being like any kind of anything to the kid, just letting the kid do. Like I'm not in charge of any kind of discipline or anything like that. Like I am very happy to capture that wild mm -hmm. that that kid still has. I love that. Um, but for my art that I, you know, that I hang on the wall and try to sell, it's more, it's less portrait and more um, sort of quirky stuff that I find in the world around me. So for our listeners, um, can you give us an example? So I guess, I mean, I'm when I'm driving around, I, you know, whether I think about it or not, I'm always scouting for stuff to shoot. So I'll pull over. I mean, my kids, I, I love road trips and we'll go on road trips all the time. You know, we, we don't go on them as much as we used to, but my oldest is a swimmer. So we travel all through Mississippi going to the wherever the meets are and my kids know that I'm distracted by every shiny object like I will turn around to see the crazy you know gigantic buffalo statue on the side of the road or whatever like uh -huh. like that kind of thing you right. know or um some beautiful old house with vines growing all over it or whatever I'm much less I'm, I'm more timid about approaching strangers but um, but I'll approach a stranger and ask them if I can shoot their thing, the thing. but uh -huh. not maybe them. Sure, that absolutely you know? makes sense. So do you know Rory Doyle? Yes. That, like, so his photography is so intimate, it uh -huh. seems, with people who he's, I mean, I think he just has met or whatever. That really kind of blows my mind. Uh -huh. Like that, uh, I don't know. That, that uninhibitedness yeah. or whatever I don't that, that lack of inhibition about just going up and saying and, and he gets like this very real feeling portrait mm -hmm. I admire that you're absolutely right for anyone um who has not seen Rory Rory Doyle's work I would encourage you to check that out but and you'll really see what Anne's talking about particularly his cowboy, his cowboy series yeah. yes black cowboy series um I'm thinking of the the one with the with the guy very 
uh-huh. right close to the camera exhaling smoke yes. or something yes, yes. Yeah. and you, and and yes as a photographer yeah. you have to go like what where was rory what was he right. thinking? you know right yeah how did he have the gumption if you his will? subjects are really comfortable yeah Absolutely. So, so I guess it's like building a relationship Mm -hmm. and then you can, but how do you do that right off the bat? Right. Right. I don't know. As an introvert, I have no idea. So yeah. (laughs) So like if I'm hired by people, like I guess it's them approaching me. So I automatically feel that I belong, Mm -hmm. but maybe me going out into the world and being like, Hey, I love your look. Can I take your picture? Like the times that I've tried that, I think I've come off as super creepy. Uh And you get a posed photo. (laughs) I would think if you're asking for a person at least, right? You're breaking the spell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exactly right. So there has to be, I guess, a level of comfort there. Right. So, um, and then tell me a little bit about the mixed media stuff that you're working on. So, um, I guess it was last August. Well, all right. Can I back up a little bit? Of course. So, my, I was lucky enough to do a workshop with a good friend of mine. Well, she became a friend. I, I just, she was a photographer that I admired, and her name is Deb Schwedhelm. And I did a workshop with her. And I felt, um, I was scared to death to go because it was, I knew that I was going to be in a room with people who were absolutely considered advanced professional photographers. And I, my friend Anna Balka said, and that, because I, you know, I talked to her about like, I don't know if I should go. I don't know if I'm advanced. And she's like, that's the, that's the room you need to be in. Mm-hmm. Those are the people you need to surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. Like, go, just do it their bar is you know the the their level is very high you need to be surrounding yourself with that it's the 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 adage of like playing with musicians that are better than you right i mean you're wanting to rise to that occasion so it was scary as hell but um but it was the best advice i think that anyone's given me like it was the kick in the pants that i needed and um so i went to that workshop came home with like you know a pocket full of new series and just feeling like I don't need to compare. I'm super excited about what other people are doing. I'm super excited about what I'm about to do, you know, moving on. And then, um, and then the following year, Deb said, so we opened Smith and Lens or I just opened Smith and Lens before that with Sandy. And I went to that workshop and the following year, Deb came to Bay St. Louis to do a workshop and had a show at Smith and & Lens. And during that time, this other photographer, Kim Turner Smith, taught a little class, like a supplemental class, on image transfer. And I took the class, and I really loved it. Then fast forward a couple months, my friend Michelle Ali says, I'm doing a show. I've got these crazy creatures that I've made with nutria skulls that I found on the beach after Hurricane Ivan. And um, I want you to create their habitat. And I was like, what? Okay. I just said, okay, because I was like, all right, whatever. And then it became real. She was like, okay, good. So I've got us a date. <laughs> and it's a pop-up at the oar. And I was like, what? And she had, all, she had done her work. Like, she had 35 pieces ready to go. And I had to make their habitat. And I was like, this isn't even what I do. But I, it was, a, you know, our thing, our show was called Beauty of the Beast. And it was the story of the aftermath of a storm. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to try this transfer on my own and see if I can't make that work. So I am eternally grateful to Michelle for kicking me out of my box and Kim for teaching me transfer and Deb for like even putting up with me. And um, so I was doing the transfer thing. Then 
Jesse, Zener, and Kate from the Greenhouse on Porter here in Ocean Springs asked me to do a show there. And I, sometime, at some point between the Beauty of the the Beauty of the Beast and that Greenhouse show, I started putting stuff on my image transfers. So I kind of saved all that for the Greenhouse show. And it was pretty much all like landscape, seascape, architecture with vibrant colored confetti or paper cutouts or whatever on top of it gold some gold leaf any anything I don't know it's like and I, and I don't even know why I did it it was just like everything felt like it was at a party kind of yeah which I like fun you know uh-huh. I don't know so I made 60 pieces for that show which was great. Well, it sounds like you really know, um, well, that you embrace taking opportunities. I mean, that's that's the thing. You may not you may not identify as someone who plans things, but it seems like there's this pattern of being p- people putting opportunities in front of you, and you essentially saying, you know what? Yeah, okay, I'm gonna try it. Well, yeah, I believe in honoring a commitment, right? Mm-hmm. So if you say you're gonna do something, and then you're given a deadline. Or if, I mean, I'm, I'm going to do it. And that really is the only way. Like, I am not going to create a body of work unless I have a deadline. Because I know me. And when people are like, yeah, just whenever. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll see you in five years. <laughs> yeah, it's pathetic. Right. But it's true. I mean, I know me. So if right. you need something from me, you got to give me a deadline. Today I'm speaking with Ann Madden, artist and co-owner of Smith & Lentz Gallery in Bay St. Louis. So, Ann, tell me more about Smith & Lentz. How did that come to be? So Sandy Maggio, who is an amazingly gifted silversmith in Bay St. Louis, and I were invited to do this sort of pop-up show um, by Nora Wyckoff, who has a a design studio. She she and her husband are architects and interior designers, and they they have a place on Main Street. And so they invited us to come and have a little pop-up show during a second Saturday. So we did that. That was kind of when we met and then um well I mean maybe we had met before but we weren't close and um I had my art in a shop around the corner and after that I was like Sandy you should put your stuff in that shop too so both of our things ended up being in this little shop around the corner and then um that with other like Mississippi made gifts and that shop ended up closing and so we kind of jumped on that we we wanted the building is amazing and wonderful and we wanted to keep our things there so we um I mean Sandy kind of made me do it like she was like we got to do this let's do this and it, it, it felt like there was no time to like even give it a thought and I just, you know we just said okay yeah let's do it we're doing it now this is what we're doing and it was terrifying and it was at like Christmas time which is my busiest time of year mm-hmm. and um so we kind of just plunged into that and then um and we knew that we wanted to show our stuff and we knew that we wanted to show other people's stuff. And we also knew that we did not want to be a traditional stuffy wine and cheese gallery. So, um, you know, we have my mom's pimento cheese at our openings, which is famous in its own, right? And then uh, we we always have our, our work there and then we feature a different artist every month. So our openings are always on the final Fridays of the month. In fact, we have one, we have an opening tonight. And um, and then we stay open late on second Saturdays, and we have pop-ups on our patio on second Saturdays also. 
And really, there's no shortage of great art on the coast. And sometimes we have artists from New Orleans, and sometimes we have artists from a little bit further away. And uh, But mostly it's just, you know, people from the coast, or at least Mississippi. And it has kind of evolved into, I mean, the building that we are in is teeny tiny. So thankfully, we do have access to this patio that we share with Magnolia Antiques next door for overflow. And then we're on the other side of us is the Mockingbird Cafe, which is, you know, my favorite place. And um, so when we, you know, when we were talking about what we wanted to be, we always knew that we wanted to be sort of a place for people to exchange ideas, big ideas, you know. And then, you know, we came up with the idea for Frida Fest after... um, All of Frida Kahlo's belongings were locked away for like 50 years after Diego Rivera's death by his orders. And then that time lapsed and then they had a show at the Tate, I think. And so it was all over the news. And, um, you know, we just thought, God, this would be such a fun way to like celebrate Frida Kahlo, like just make a themed second Saturday in July. It's kind of a rough time for selling art in Mississippi. It's so hot. hot, But um, July, like Frida Kahlo's birthday is in July. And uh, so the first year that we did it, um, some people played along and some people were like, you know, of the other merchants in Old Town were like, what? You know, and then we, and that was when we realized like not everybody knows who Frida Kahlo is. Uh So people thought like, what? Who? And we're like, come on, y'all. So for our listeners, when, when you're describing what, their reactions what mm-hmm. what to so tell us a little bit about well like, like who they were like who is Frida Cola oh oh interesting <laughs> not everybody but some so so the arts Hancock County got on board and mm. and um they have these Frida masks they're really fans so that's it's a good little you know it's her face so you can it, it's a little bit of costume if you need it and then on the back it's got all these sort of it's got a you know a very brief history of her and it's and hot. You with, need a fan and it's in hot, July. So you need a fan, okay. right? Frida Fest ends in a lookalike contest, which is okay. hilarious and wonderful. So everybody is somewhat in costume, and really, we found that that's kind of all. Like that is the heartbeat of the festival is the costume because people they're just they're at a party. Like put them in a flower crown, and they're at a party. And you know, we often have mariachi band, and a lot every year it grows. And we've had all the merchants, or most of the merchants, do their own little something, you know, like whether it's a salsa contest or, you know, a paint-by-numbers mural or whatever. Um, Everyone's on board with Frida Fest, and it is a blast. And this past year, we were contacted by the Mexican consulate in New Orleans. They wanted to come, so we obviously were delighted to have them there. And... um, uh, there is a Mexican man who owns the Pearl River Blues, the blueberry farm out in Lumberton. And he said, I want to come. I want to volunteer. And we were like, wonderful. And he we brought all of his all of his friends who are, you know, living on the coast, who are from Mexico. And he's like, we are all, you know, we want to come. We love this. This is awesome. So, I mean, it's just, it's so cool when something is embraced like that and just grows and it sort of feels organic and we love it. And while it is growth, like the growth is exciting. We never want it to feel not, we never want it to feel too polished, 
I guess. Right. Sure. Because it's still com- community and yes. people bring their own it's free. spirit to it's it. It's a free yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, you pay to be in the lookalike contest, but like, and there's lots of stuff to buy. Uh-huh. But to come and enjoy Frida Fest is, um, you know, you just got to get yourself there. So, um, so Frida Fest was first. Yes. Um, I mentioned earlier I'm from East Tennessee. Yeah. So I grew up going to Dollywood. Oh, awesome. Um, so the second similar event, uh-huh. the Dolly Should. Yes. Tell us about kind of the impetus and what that, what Dolly Should means and kind of how that got so, started. So Sandy actually came up with the name Dolly Should because we think Dolly Should celebrate her birthday with us. And believe it or not, on the first Dolly Should, Marshall Blevins swears that she saw Dolly Parton there. A Dolly Parton sighting. She swears she saw her in the passenger seat of a blue pickup truck driving down Main Street. So we are sticking with that. Wow. Wow. A true Dolly sighting. So so this has a a dress up component as well. Yes. 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 And this is coming up in January. So I really want people to be aware of this. Right around the corner. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So January twelfth. Mm-hmm. So so just paint me a little picture. People descend on Bay St. Louis. Yes. Dressed as Dolly. As Dolly through the decades. Like Frida's uh, kind yes. of like. Well, Frida has a few different looks, you know. But g- generally, people are a flower crown and braids put mm-hmm. up. Dolly, you can pick any decade. Like I am usually I usually do like the '60s '70s Dolly with the big hair, mm-hmm. like long hair. It's part of why I haven't cut mine. Oh, nice! Because January's <laughs> coming. Because I'm really proud that it's my own hair, <laughs> right? You know? um, but there's so many hairdos that you can do for Dolly that it's a trip. And um, every year we've had our friend Arthur Severio, aka Reba Douglas, come and MC the contest. And every year we have had the Clear Branch Cloggers for Christ come and entertain while the judges deliberate. So we've got, you know, drag queens to Cloggers for Christ, like all really, truly are welcome. Right. That's truly all walks Mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. I was in Gatlinburg a few years ago and went to the Dixie Stampede to see a show. Mm -hmm. And they, they, uh, you know, we had to eat. They kind of move you from one section to another. And Mm -hmm. my husband and I were joking that to get to the arena, you had to walk under the largest photo of Dolly you Uh could ever imagine. I mean, bigger than a door. I mean, it was huge. And you all just had to like... We felt like we were all getting the blessings of Dolly, you know, <laughs> before we went to the awesome. Dixie Stampede. That's I mean, awesome. that whole that whole city, you know, it's like you just feel her her spirit everywhere. Yeah, and it's it's she's incredible. pretty great. Yeah, and you're right. It's, I mean, her career is so long. Yeah, and she has so many different looks. There's so, yeah. it's she's one of those cultural icons that yeah you could delve into little pieces and right. parts right. of her story or her music. I mean, what great, what great fodder for celebration. Totally. Absolutely. So you think she'll ever come? Yes, she came. (laughs) She came. We we welcome her back when she's ready. Absolutely. Oh, that that would be be so wonderful. It would be. I feel like if she were to come, she would do it like that by surprise. Yeah. Just show up. We're ready, Dolly, if you're listening. (laughs) That's right. You are welcome to Bay St. Louis on your birthday. January 12th. Please come. Or, uh-huh. if you know, if you want to come any other time, right? You're any, still yeah, welcome. Absolutely. Smith anytime, and Lynn. Anytime. Perfect. <laughs> 106 South 2nd. <laughs> that's, that's, that's so great. I'm, I'm planning on coming this Yay. year. It's so exciting. 
Um, so lastly, I'll ask you just about kind of other things you're involved in. So um, I've heard about the Raw Oyster Marching Club. What's that? So my friend Martha Whitney Butler started that. It was sort of a spinoff from a from a burlesque troupe that she had called the Big Sleazy Burlesque. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Martha's a trip and uh, fearless and obviously has big ideas. And so she started this, you know, marching club, the Raw Oysters. And we, um, every year we dance and, um, you know, do our thing in the Lundy Gras Parade, the Mystic Crew of the Seahorse, and then also in the Crew of Real People the next day. That's amazing. Well, it's it has been such a pleasure to talk to you, Anne. I really appreciate you coming on. 